Hello and welcome to episode 146 of the 1099 for the week of April 30th, 2018. I'm your host, Josiah Renauden, and with me today is a game critic, freelancer, former frequent game spotter, award show man, a returning guest, and the 1099 spirit animal, Nick Capazzoli. Nick, it's been like, like a year since we recorded something at least. It's been a while. How you doing? I think so. I mean, you've been busy. You've got like a lot on your belt at this point. I think I was <laughs> yeah. on some of the earlier ones, like in the you know couple first dozen. Yeah, back when it was like full on freelance, constantly talking about game reviews, and then you know you can only really do that for so long before you realize you're making the same point. You're like, let's talk about other things now. But that's we are going to talk. As I so said, we're, we're going to talk about game reviews again. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's a reason for this one. So I was. I really want to do another podcast with you because, again, it's been a while and I was kind of going over in my head what would make sense so that we're not just repeating ourselves. And we, I had a listener who had reached out to me and said, hey, what if you give, similar to a mailbag, have people who are interested in game reviews, whether they are trying to write them themselves, whether they love them, they hate them, or they're just like interested in them in general, have them submit questions to two people who have written reviews for a long time. And both of us were at GameSpot for a while. Um, you've freelanced at multiple other places. I was at IGN for a bit with reviews. And kind of just talk about it, the process of it, uh, different aspects of it, why reviews are good or why reviews suck. We have a, a medley of different <laughs> opinions in these questions. Um, we This is the best set of questions I've ever been sent for a podcast. Like It's just super varied. People were not holding back in a lot of these. Uh, I really had to stop and think. And I'm, I, Nick, you too, you were looking over them and had to kind of, you know, you had to ask yourself a lot of questions when you're going through yeah, this because they're deep. Some surprising ones. Yeah, there were definitely some surprising ones. So it'd be about an hour long show. We got it from Twitter. We got some emails. We got some from Reddit. Um, I'm just going to start right off rough top from Twitter. This is from Jacob McCourt at Jacob McCourt. Uh, he has two questions. I'll start with this one. Um, what are both of your opinions about writing for free? Like, how long should you do it? What sort of pieces have the most value, et cetera? So let's start with that one. Uh, actually did almost a full podcast with Shea Serrano about writing for free. Oh, yeah, that's a good one. Yeah. It's such a weird topic. Spurs homeboy. Yeah. <laughs> well, how's the Kawhi thing going for you right now? Are you just confused about the entire situation? Um, uh, you know, it, it's all up in limbo, but uh, he's going to parachute down in game five and, <laughs> and save the day. And They could so win so. that series if he played. Like, I really strongly believe that. I know he's like out of practice, but all right, sorry, I, I, we can't talk about basketball. Um, <laughs> just lose everyone immediately. Uh, so I had that entire podcast and I was talking about this with someone else recently where I think if you're doing anything creative like writing or design or you know music and stuff a lot of people just assume you get that shit for free like people will be we're surprised if i'm like offering them money or something for like podcast art or podcast intro because you're not like used to it but you should get paid for this kind of stuff but then there's this aspect of it where i was when i started i was 17 or 18 and i sucked like really badly like i would not pay for what i had so I came up writing for free for probably two or three years. And it was on smaller sites that weren't actually really making any money. So I go back and forth in my head about this because it's it was what I did to get where I am because at that time, I don't really think my writing was good enough. I needed the practice. I needed the reps to, to do that. And there's times where people say, well, then just write on your personal blog. And I totally get that. But the exposure I had, which I hate that word too, but the exposure I had on this slightly larger than my own blog site helped me get to where I am today and get paid to do what I do. There's this, so I, I, I kind of tug a war in my brain of, 
yes, if you're writing something, you should get paid, but I would not pay myself when I came up. Nick, I don't even think you never really wrote for free, right? You pretty much started right away at something like a GameSpot. Uh, so I actually started at a uh, small, I think it was an Australian-based site uh, before I got ready for it. <laughs> I started a UK-based site. Maybe this is how everyone starts. Yeah. They just like, it's, that's how it works. Yeah, it's like, um, we'll go back to the NBA. It's like you got to do a little D-League time, you know, <laughs> like playing Croatia for a bit kind of thing. Yeah, overseas for a bit, and then eventually you get called up. Yeah, exactly. Um, so I did that, I think, for about a year, uh, and then uh, jumped over to GameSpot, yeah. So, like, you know, I, I, it wasn't for free, per se. I think I got, like, a, a kind of a, like a nominal, like, $5 per review kind of payment or something like that. It was the most they could do. Um, I mean, I think that was... When you, when you do this, obviously, I think you don't want to be taken advantage of. So you don't want to write for any place... Uh, you don't want to write for free for any place that can afford to pay you, certainly. Yeah. Um, uh, I think, you know, when you, there's a, a whole bunch of sites that kind of offer this sort of thing for starting writers. And, um, I think a lot of them will usually trade on the fact that they can get you review copy or they can get you access to, you know, E3 or to, you know, conventions and things like that. Um, I, I think that's all well and good. Uh, you know, I went to E3, I think on that site's, um, uh, pass. I mean, I paid my way there, of course. Um, which is, you know, it's a good experience, I think, starting out too. Um, one thing I would say is maybe, um, be skeptical of any place that's going to be, uh, like touting how many views they get, um, you know, as instead of in lieu of payment, well, we'll get your, your voice out there to this many people, that kind of thing. Um, uh, just in my experience, it doesn't really have any practical value for you, you yep. know, like, I mean, if, if the site has a bunch of views, that's fine for them. It doesn't really mean much for you unless it's, you know, your personal audience that you're going to be taking somewhere else. So that's going to be somehow turning into money for you later down the line. Um, but you know, if they're getting a bunch of views through, you know, whatever it is, N4G or something like that, or you're posting stuff on NeoGAF, it doesn't really mean much for you unless it's actually translating into something for you personally. Yeah. And if they're guaranteeing you a high number of views, they could probably pay you. Like if they're saying like, oh, your review is going to get a few hundred thousand clicks, then you should be like, well, then why am I not getting paid for this? If that's the sort of exposure yeah, exactly. and the, the reach that your site has. Yeah. It, it's definitely weird because I do think are people, so let's say you're pitching to someone for the first time, is the editor really going to care if you wrote a review on your personal blog versus a site they've never really heard of that doesn't pay people? Like, not really. I don't think it's going to make a major difference. Yeah. Like, when it does make a major difference is when they do recognize that name, but that usually comes with actual paid work. It's also, it is good where if you can find a, a well-run site that has strong editors who can look at your stuff and help you get better, there's definitely more value to that than just, you know, being your own blog where you're the only set of eyes. So there is some value there because that's something I talk about all the time where having an editor early on is super useful. But how the fuck do you find that? It's so Like rare. you kind of have that moment. It's super rare. I was very lucky where I had a roommate in college who was just an incredible editor and English major. And he was able to look at my stuff before I ever got to Games for IGN just to get me to a spot where I could kind of start self-editing that way and you wouldn't have like trashy copy that you'd send over to people and actually it works really well for uh, for jacob's next question which he says what is the most underrated skill for a freelancer to have uh it's it sounds really silly to be be good at <laughs> be a good writer uh it seems like it shouldn't be an underrated thing but because now game coverage has moved so far in streaming and video and podcasting i know a lot of people are fans of games first and don't really think about the writing part until they're like, okay, well, the way I can get into games and get paid to discuss games is writing. 
instead of having kind of a passion for both and have that intersect. So it, it sounds crazy to say I think an underrated skill is delivering clean copy. Um, but it is. That is and literally, there's a lot of people. I have that written down in my notes. <laughs> it's, yes. It's right. oh, I'm so happy I stole that one. I would have been so bummed if you took it from me first. I, it's, it's, that's a huge thing. And I think you can also say, hey, it's really good if you want to make money at this and do it uh, like just about everywhere. You have to be well-rounded and know a little bit of everything. But I think there's just a lack of really strong, even writing fundamentals out there. And if you are sending over stuff that just needs it overhauled every single time by an editor that it's not going to be too long before the editor is like why am i even paying this person i'm writing this for them so that's that's mine did you have a second one or did i completely steal everything from you uh no you stole everything um oh that's great no but i'll, I'll maybe add on to it a little bit i mean like i think that if you could write you know being able to write clean copy is really just about being able to express your ideas in a clear and concise way and that is a skill that will translate if you even if you want to do video or something like that or, or, or you know even streaming same same sort of ideas um, clean copy is we're using it as a shorthand really for like knowing what the words <laughs> that you say mean and how you can you <laughs> string them together so like it, I, I want to see people that can you know what they know how uh, subjects and objects are used in a sentence, uh, able to have a consistency of a tense, you know, um, punctuation, you know, knowing what a comma splice is, knowing when to use a semicolon, things like that, when the passive voice should be used and, you know, have an opinion about it. Um, I, like, I think once you get through those ground rules, which like so few people have, like that's when you're able to actually like, if you know the rules, then you can actually, you can start playing jazz with them. You can start experimenting and do some different things. That's how you get to, you know, more expressive ideas and be able to be more creative and that's the stuff that's going to get you noticed ultimately yeah when that stuff when that stuff becomes second nature like you said you can start experimenting in different ways to critique a game and different the different styles of reviews but if you're constantly like worried about the grammar aspect of it just because it's not something you're super experienced and it really does drag the entire thing down but it, it takes time it takes practice and again yeah. the weirdest thing to say is i think an underrated skill of writing is being good at it but that's kind of how it is right now with with game reviews. Well, I mean, you don't you, you don't want your baseline to be like do do people understand the words that I'm saying here? Like yeah. you want it to be like oh, are they following me on this idea and things like that. So, if you can really get those ground rule, you know, things done, then you can really move on to that stuff and that's where you can actually start getting your own voice and doing something different. Yeah, and getting your own voice is something we'll definitely talk about later. It's a it's a question that kind of brings that up. But this one's from Alex Hoffman at Muldunix9. That's I nailed that pronunciation. I love this question. Um, I ended up buying the division because everyone described its train wreck politics in such a way I wanted to experience it firsthand. Has a negative critique ever made you seek out a game? I feel like I want to hear your answer for this first, because I feel like you have to have certain games where it's just the buzz around it is so either like diverse or just straight bad that you almost feel like you have to be a part of the conversation. It's tough. I don't know if I've had a, ever had like a negative review that really mm. drew me in there. Uh, you know, like I don't think I usually read the kinds of reviews that would say something like, Oh, you know, this game is too artsy. Like I wish I could <laughs> shoot more people or something like that. In which case I'd be like, Oh yeah, actually that might be for me kind of thing. Um, you know, I'm like, I don't know if I can't, I can't really review like, hate read reviews anymore well for me it, this is not like a super negative review but the far cry far cry 5 stuff made me want to play far cry 5 oh, it did. there's definitely this side of it that um i have it i've only played like 40 minutes something like that i just had a lot of other stuff to do but there's definitely this part of me that i think i know where i'm going to stand on it based on what i've read and what i've seen but it's also like look i should 
I should actually experience this for myself and have an, I don't need to have an opinion, but I want to. It's the, the, all the people, the circles that I run and have these conversations about what Far Cry 5 is and how it succeeds in areas and super fails in others and pulls punches. And I can sit here and spout that I agree with that without actually playing it. But I, I do think there's an important part of like, let me, let me explore this and see where I'm at on. I, I've come down on the division was one of those for me too. Um, I, there's part of me that really wants to play. It's not out yet, but Detroit, just because I want to know. <laughs> I just want to know. Like I, I, I just want to see what this David Cage game looks like. And I, it's a, it's an easy way to waste money. Where you're like, I don't think I'm gonna like this, but I want to be able to talk about it. You want to be part of the conversation, yeah. You you want Fun. to, and like that's usually what happens. So it's not like, oh my god, this game is a three out of ten on all these different people's like scoring systems. I need to see this shit. Like there's a, there's a Duke Nukem aspect maybe to that, but most of the time it's just if this game is causing a stir in some sort of way, and you're seeing a lot of reviews all over the place, I want to kind of see where I fall on it. Yeah, I think I, it's the same sort of thing for me, actually, probably. Like, not necessarily negative reviews, but if, if there's a lot of conversation being stirred up, then, yeah, that's going to drive my curiosity anytime. Yep. Next Twitter question here. Uh, this is from Vinicius Machado, at V Machado. Just the... I tried to like be able to pronounce all these before, but in the moment, it's way harder. Okay, this person says, how do you write more meaningful criticism in a way that more quote-unquote mainstream readers can get interested in? Um, also, as a bonus question of what's your best advice to improve as a critic and keep writing doesn't count. We can get to that part later. But yeah, main point here is how do you write more meaningful criticism in a way that mainstream readers can get behind? Hmm, I should be able to answer this because I, I try to do that. <laughs> this right. is this is one that I got stuck on a lot because I think we, what we were doing, I'm not going to try to make it sound like the most important times in GameSpot's history, but like when we were writing reviews for Kevin, Kevin Van Oort, and we had that kind of group of freelancers and he really gave us room to talk about games differently and kind of just say what we wanted to say. Uh, I think that probably introduced more mainstream audiences to that style of criticism because GameSpot has that reach, right? Yeah. So when an editor allows for it and when a, a site of that you know that size lets you, you kind of ease people into that style of review. And of course, you read comments for a lot of our reviews. You'll probably see people who are angry that we're not talking about games the way they've always read them or heard them talked about. But I think there kind of has to be the right... If, you, if you're going in for a really niche site... You're usually going to get that smaller audience who's seeking that out. But if you do write it for a GameSpot or an IGN, it gets out there. Like other than that, it it's a really hard question. It's a good question, but it's a really hard question to answer. I think that was. I mean, I think GameSpot during that time was it was kind of a proving ground for that. Um, like, and I, I, you know, you obviously, I think both of us know that we would get a lot of comments that would show that, like, you know, at some level we were pressing up against a, you know, a, a, an audience that was a little bit resistant to the, you know, the ideas that I think that we were trying to get across with the reviews. Mm. Um, you know, I mean, we, I think also probably both got our share of really good comments too. Um, you know, like it, it's something I've always tried for. Like I, I cannot <laughs> go toe to toe with any of the, like, you know, philosopher academic type uh people that you know we have some of in the game industry like um austin walker could probably talk circles around me i think yeah uh, i we've been almost doing a podcast multiple times and i'm almost terrified of it because i'm like i'm just gonna get just just gonna wipe the floor with me on any conversations <laughs> like this sorry to interrupt no yeah but so like i mean i mean that's that's a little bit beyond me um i mean i don't know about you but i, I always really liked um grantland uh, when it yeah. existed now onto the ringer the the kind of 
writers that they have there, I think they're sort of aiming for that. They definitely have a uh, a writerly kind of uh, I'm not going to say quite literary, but they have a they want to you know bring more to the table when they talk about sports or when they talk about any of the other subjects that they get into. Um, and they do that knowing that their audience is a bunch of people that are coming there to find out, you know, who the, you know, who picked who for their bracket and that, you know, some stuff like that. So they, you know, they know what that audience is and they're trying to get them, you know, a little bit more out of it. Um, which I've always been, I found really interesting and it's what I kind of try to do too. Um, I think a good inroad for it is, uh, humor. Um, yeah. Uh, I, I try to mix that in. Even if I'm writing about something really serious, I'll try to like put in a little bit of a, like a, a witticism or some kind of little biting, sarcastic joke or something like that. Um, if you can do that, I think that always kind of helps to, you know, grease the wheels a little bit when you're trying to get through a more higher brow kind of criticism. Um, and I think that you see that the best writers, like, I mean, it's really, we're in kind of like a golden age for that kind of writing, really. Um, yeah. because the way that the internet and the way social media, uh, you know, affect the way that things get shared, like there's like a high, you know, there's a, uh, a high price put on being able to get like a really quick, you know, bon mod out there, something like really just witty and clear and pithy, uh, that'll attract people's attention. So, um, you know, the, uh, I like Gia Tolentino over the New Yorker, uh, Lori Penny. If you go back and read, um, uh, Lee Alexander did a great job of that, uh, with game games criticism. Um, you know, and sometimes people fight back about it, but you get like stuff that can be really broadly consumed because it's, it's funny, it's witty, it's acerbic, it's, you know, uh, incisive, that kind of thing. And it'll take time for people to get used to that style of writing and the way that, that critics talk about games. Cause again, for the longest time it's, it's been, it, what does it look like? Does the shooting feel good? How many multiplayer modes are they? Great. Like, and that's all people really cared about. And as games evolve and explore new themes, this style of criticism will continue to grow. And hopefully, again, people will read it and not get that immediate reaction of, I don't care about the game's themes or politics. I just care about how it plays. Hopefully, we'll get there. Like, it's just, it's hard to know. Um, with the, what's your best advice to improve as a critic? Again, a hard question because, yeah, a lot of people say, oh, keep writing, you'll get there. I think we I think too often with game reviews, people and I'm super guilty of this. I, I was for a long time. Just say stuff without actually proving it where it's like, oh, the, this this aspect of the game is good and not actually backing that up with anything. Just assuming that is something and or this aspect of the game doesn't work. The story is bad, but not really going into why it's bad. Just making blanket statements, almost being like, I'm going to list the different features of the game. And then at the end of the paragraph, be like, this part of it is bad. And then you move on to the next thought. And I think that's something that Kevin really helped me with as an editor being like, all right, I have no idea why you actually feel this way. You just are just making a statement without backing it up. So I think just make sure when you're actually going through your review and reading it back, like, all right, did I, did I prove this point or am I just saying something and moving on? That's kind of something that I know I sucked at and at least got better at over time. I'll say, um, something I think I've I've brought up on Twitter before, um, that I think a lot of critics fall into a trap of, um, I described it as a kind of a path. Like when you're reviewing a game, you're on a path. And um, I, I see a lot of critics that jump in a little bit too far towards the end of the, you know, they, they come in, they hit the ground running further down the path than they should be. 
So uh, they come in and say, like, oh, you know, like, what are we doing right now? Well, we're playing a shooter. Okay, the the bad guys are terrorists. Okay, so uh, get it. You know, who do I have to point the gun at? Let's see how good the shooting feels, that kind of thing. Um, when I think what we need to do is is slow everything down a little bit. And then really early on in our process, for, for every part of it, every single time we're considering some aspect of the game, um, I think a good habit for the critic to be in is to second guess things uh you yeah. always be saying but what you know but what if even if if i come to a game and i think like oh this is trite bullshit this is stupid and that kind of thing i should be saying like you know what is it trying to do uh why is it trying to do that is is it meaningful for it to be trying to do that is this a goal that's worth achieving if, if it's just dumb fun then you know why is it interesting or important or who cares that it's just dumb fun like maybe there's a reason that that's good i have to you know probe that out that kind of thing so like even Whatever my first impulses are, I, it's always good to think, well, maybe I'm wrong. You know, go back and then reconsider. Try to argue it from the other side. And if you know, if, if there's nothing there, if I end up smothering that argument in its bed, then that's fine. But I've at least considered it, and now I can argue against it. Yeah, and I think it's a great way to do it. But it does take. I think your reviews took a while for that reason. I mean, in the positive way, where you have to, when you're questioning that much, you really have to sit and think on it. And you can't get a game and then be like, you're, you have five days to play and review this because then you really don't have the, the breathing room to question things as much. You end yeah. up maybe going with your gut instinct on things, which doesn't always lead to the best criticism. Well, for I mean, if we're talking about just process for like getting started as a writer too, I, th- I do think that's a good way to go about it. Especially if you have the you know, if you're working on your own blog or in a small start or something like that, you know, give yourself the time to go through that process because then over time you start to you know smooth things up you know with it you get a little bit more streamlined you start to internalize those processes like a little bit better so that you 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 know how you think you know how to work around it you know how to get to the end result that you need to get to a little bit quicker um so it's a good process to go through for the start i mean when i was running for a game spot like it you know would take me a long time to get these reviews out and stuff but um you know i was also really in the scale like a starting writer you know and you know now years on i feel like i'm just finally starting to get to the point where I'm a little bit better at that. And I can start putting reviews out, do criticism, do features and opinion pieces like a little bit faster because I, I know where the traps are. I know I, you know, I can work through this process a little bit better. Do you feel like you were given games that didn't have really close embargoes and you can kind of take time on it purposely from Kevin? So it's like, Hey, I know that your, your process takes a longer. You can, you can work on this game that doesn't need a, a review in a week. I think so. And I think he deliberately, most of the time I picked the games that I was going to review, hmm. which is great because I, I could pick all sorts of obscure, you know, <laughs> and, and go through it at my own time. And he didn't care when he was going to get the review for whatever weird thing I downloaded off, you know, uh, itch.io or whatever was going to get turned in. Uh, and then I would get the occasional one where, you know, some other reviewer had fallen through on something and they needed one turned around in a week. And that's, you know, it's a different kind of exercise, but, um, yeah, he definitely took those too. So, what a weird time and a really great time, but like it, that's rare. Uh, this is from Will Dowell at Schmoo five hundred five. I feel like this one was made for you. Uh, I was wondering your opinion on using more literary critique styles in game reviews and analysis. Uh, while we are slowly improving on feminist and societal critiques, we still lack the discussions on pacing, themes, and literary structure outside of very niche spaces. Um, we talked before a little bit about now that games are evolving and, and tackling more things it leads to critics who could talk about those things more seriously so like it, what's your thought on this one i mean it's tough because you know even literary critique in 
literature is still <laughs> it's still pretty niche, you know. Um, you know, I think most people probably go to Goodreads and stuff like that for the, you know, this kind of thing. Um, yeah, I mean, there's still a big gap, obviously. Um, I think sometimes we're seeing people who are, you know, I think there's the understanding that people need to get better about doing social critique about games, you know, introducing feminism and stuff like that. It's been a little bit touch and go. Some people are better at it than others. And, um, you know, it's, it, it's, a, it's a good impulse and I'm, I'm glad to see it making progress, but not, you know, obviously not only the command isn't always there to be able to talk about it, especially when so many of the people that are trying to do it are a bunch of us white guys, you know, yep. um, not always that great at articulating the ideas. Um, so, you know, obviously I think those processes will get a little bit better as we diversify the kind of kinds of people that are writing about games. So we get more people that can speak about the stuff with more command, uh, you know, doing it firsthand. Um, and that'll help the rest of us too, to, to be able to articulate ideas and stuff a little bit better. Um, I, obviously, you know, this is a kind of a games journalism will always be a little bit of an amateur kind of space and there's good and bad to that. It's more experimental yeah. sometimes. Also, sometimes the rigor isn't always there for the, you know, the writing. And so we're not going to have people always coming in necessarily with a perfect back, you know, academic background to do real like literary style criticism. We're going to get a lot of people that are coming in from different, you know, tangential kind of jobs trying to do it, uh, which is fun and it's weird and experimental and, and different. And you get all this stuff mixed up together, you know, from people's different backgrounds. So at the same time, it's always going to be a little bit touch and go. Yeah. And you don't want to force it. Like it, it, if it doesn't come to you with a certain review, certain game, I mean, I'm super into the idea of like a super literary critique of like Madden. Like, let's just go into that and see how that goes. But like, I think certain games call for a certain style of review and it, it is this entire space is super experimental and young and, and getting better in some spots, maybe worse than others. It's, it's all over the place. But yeah, it's one of those things that want to see more of it, but it is niche and don't force it on in situations where it just doesn't seem to make sense. Um, this is from Jonathan Wright at Roku 13. Reviews and their reception are so subject to taste that it seems exhausting to devote your effort into something that can't satisfy everyone. If your goal can't be to please everyone, what do you set out to do with a review? How do you deal with backlash when it happens? You definitely shouldn't review a game hoping that everyone agrees with your review and likes it. Yeah, That's not... That cannot be your goal. And again, if we're going back to a major site like IGN, you you every site you can kind of it depends what style of review you need to do, who your audience is, and you do need to alter things from time to time. But if you, let's say you're writing a personal review for your own blog, I don't think you need to worry about will people like this. You play the game and you you talk about the game and what grabbed you, the things that were important to you, the things that were super lacking. Like you mentioned before, if, whether or not you question something and does this need to be here, you're not worried about is this going to go over well. The backlash will come and it's weird at the start. Always, yeah. Um, I bet not that we need to continue to beat the dead horse that is your Dead Rising review. But I bet mm -hmm. that was one of the weirder situations for you because you had written for smaller sites and you had gotten to GameSpot and that got this massive reaction. People writing articles hating you because you gave, you know, and maybe not AAA, like two and a half A game, a very low review score because of certain themes that did not jive with you, which is fine. So in, in that case, you're writing a review because that's how you feel. You're not worried that about how the GameSpot audience is going to take that or even your editor because your editor should just want you to play the game and give 
you know, an honest opinion, honest critique of it. So I, I don't think you should worry about that. I think you just want to make sure you're saying how you feel about something. You're conveying your thoughts in hopefully an intelligent way. And that's about all I'm really thinking about. Yeah. And I think I actually, in the comments for that review, I think I was telling people the same sort of thing, which is that, um, you know, like the only thing that I can do is be honest in a review. Uh, and if I, if I'm writing, trying to meet some expectation from some imagined, you know, audience, like, you know, then I'm, I'm inventing something basically. And I'm not, I'm not being truthful. I'm not being honest because I'm trying to meet something that doesn't necessarily exist. You know, if I assume that the audience wants to read this, you know, then one, first off, I'm not being truthful to myself. Uh, and then the other thing is that I'm also, I'm making an assumption about what the audience, you know, wants to see. And then that comes with its own problems too, because I could be, you know, who we think of as the default audience is, is, you know, not, you know, that, that, that comes with a lot of assumptions that I think don't necessarily bear out and different priorities too. Like if I say like, Oh, you know, the, the people that come to uh GameSpot, they don't want to read the kind of, you know, thing that I, I write when I'm being honest. Like, I think that's unfair to a lot of the readers because a lot of them, do enjoy that kind of thing. Yeah. And if I, if I, you know, dumb them down and say like, Oh, they can't handle this word. They can't like, they can't, you know, like then that's, that's unfair too. Uh, and if I say that they don't care about, um, the depiction of race in the game or the depiction of, of, um, uh, women in the game, then that's an unfair assumption too. And that comes with a whole, a bunch of other things that are packed into it. And none of those things are being, you know, if I, if I, th- try to work around that stuff, that's not being objective. That's just, you know, me not being honest to what the actual things that I feel are, and then writing to someone else's, uh, imagined assumptions about what's important and what isn't. And that's its own subjective thing too. So since it's all subjective, I should just be honest and clear and truthful about my subjectivity and what I feel about it. And then it, the reader can take that and they can say either that jives with them or it doesn't jive with them. But if I've laid it all out there, then hopefully it'll be useful and interesting for them. And hopefully I've written well enough that it can be entertaining either way. Yeah, you can't write with the fear of backlash on your mind, whether that be from readers or even from, let's say, publishers who had sent you that free game. And I think that's something that when you're writing for a smaller site and you suddenly get just big enough that you could start getting review copies, you can't worry about if I give this game a four, I will suddenly not get review copies from this publisher anymore. People will try it for the smaller sites. Oh, totally. They'll lean on them. They'll You'll get the angry emails and stuff. It's just um, it's a fact of life, really. That is an honest thing. And that happens. And I, again, this is not me calling any like particular publisher or even outlet out. But I know there are smaller sites that will maybe be more forgiving to a game because they don't want to lose access in the future. Like that's a thing. And that's a complete failing on both sides of that where the publisher shouldn't be hanging that over the head, but also you can't give into that and suddenly be like, well, this game's kind of like a five in my head, but we can move this to like a seven or I could talk about this more positively. And also when you're younger and you're at the smaller site and you're just really goddamn excited that you're getting free shit, you might just be more positive on a game and forgive it in more ways. So it, that's a really weird thing. So when, you, when you're writing criticism, you've got to like throw that shit out and not worry about expectations and backlash. You just got to write the review. Yeah, like just the, how you feel about it. Yeah, it's the danger of how adjacent the amateur space is for the stuff to the professional space. You know, Some of that stuff is on Metacritic. There's like no doubt in my brain that there are like some of those like amateur smaller sites they get on Metacritic that gets into a weirder spot also yeah. where like those are considered you know though that's deciding 
and again, we can get to Metacritic some other day, like that's deciding bonuses and public perception. And I do think some of those smaller sites slip in there. Yeah. When I, when I wrote for the smaller sites, you know, I, I knew that, that that attitude was kind of pervasive where you're kind of like clawing for every little bit of relevance that you can get. So if you, oh, if you land a spot on Metacritic or if you, you know, you can get attention for a thing, you land some weird exclusive or something like that, then you try to leverage that as best as you can. And, you know, that, that combined with the fact that it's an amateur scene kind of, the, the adjacency to the power of like publishers and things like that can create temptations to do the wrong thing. So you have to be really careful when you're coming up to try to not get into those situations where people are teaching you bad habits, you know, bad methods, things that are, you know, really counter to what you want to do if you want to do good journalism. And I'm not one of those people who thinks that there's reviews being paid for all over the place. I really don't believe that. And every site I've ever written for, which has been a lot, like that has never come up. But when people mention that, I think it's much more of you can find a way to get the smaller sites, just get excited that they're getting copies and then you get positive press. You see this on YouTube all the time. Maybe a little bit of a tangent from that question, but it's something that was on my mind. Uh, This is from Hawkinson at Hawkinson88. Reviewing, multiple questions here. Reviewing means you have to churn through a lot of games. Is there a game that you wish you could have kept playing but was too time-consuming, like an MMO or Destiny? Um, as soon as I played Destiny, I wanted to not be playing Destiny. But I, um, I've definitely had sports. I reviewed a lot of sports games, and there's a lot of times where uh, I have a very tight window for that. But I want to keep playing. Like instead of seeing all the features that I don't really care about, I want to just keep playing like online games, like uh, UFC games or Madden or 2K. Where I'm like, I just want to play more online and do this because I'm enjoying it. But I can't. Because I need to see every aspect of this game. So I can't really think of an MMO, but that happens with me as sports games all the time. Yeah, I don't like, um, I think the way that I usually play games isn't really, I, I don't, I don't like to like just really go hardcore into a game completely, you know, and like really just immerse myself in it. Like, so like when I have to review a game like that, like an MMO or something like that, or an RPG where I really have to just like sit with it for a very long time. It's usually just about enough to the point where like when I, when I put it away for the review, finally, I'm like, I need to take a break. from that. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like even if I loved it, I'm like, all right, I gotta, I gotta sit back a little bit and do something else. Just so, like, I've really had my, my head in the weeds there for a while. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't know if there's ever one that I've really felt like I really need to come back to. Um, I mean, I always wish I had more time for MMOs, but um, usually the ones that I was reviewing uh, were kind of, uh, I'm going to say, not not the best ones that were out there. So I never felt any pressing need to come back to them. Um, I did review Eve. Um, little, oh, man, uh, I forgot about that. Yeah, it was one of my first ones, but it was like it was a kind of like a coming back to Eve because I think I, they had wanted to update uh, GameSpot's review for it because I think they gave it like a five out of ten really early on, and uh, it had gone through a couple of big expansions and like really started to kind of come into its own as this game that everyone has these crazy stories about. So they they had wanted someone to come in and and, and kind of testify to that. So that was one of my first ones, uh, and I always want to get back to Eve. Never have time for it. <laughs> I don't think anyone really has time for Eve unless you make Eve your full-time job. Yeah, <laughs> I think it might be like, the only way to actually get away with that. You're mine AFK. I, oh, God. Sometimes it's I think a, maybe I could just be an AFK miner. Like, maybe I could do that. I see that in your future. That seems yeah. like the next, like, logical next step for you. Uh, same person, another question here. When writing criticism of a game, is there a point where you feel you're being too forgiving, too harsh, and is that the editor's problem? I mean, the editor should definitely, if they think you're harping on something too much... Of course, that's something I should point out. Or I've definitely had times where I'll write a review and then I would have an editor say like, okay, I 
don't like you gave this game a nine but all of this reads like an eight like that happens every once in a while so there's here's um i've admitted this before the nba 2k game that had that awful story mode with spike lee Oh yeah, um, uh, I reviewed. 16, right? Yes, I reviewed that for Gamespot. Um, I was not harsh enough on that game, so I loved as a basketball game. I think that was like maybe the best 2K. Like just everything clicked in so many different ways, and I was overly lenient on that story. And I was like, "This is goofy and dumb," but that was an excellent story. I loved that it, story. Oh god! But like the I actual aspects surrounding the my career we're similar to what they've always done, but there's just these ridiculously goofy story moments. There's like a ghost moment. There's a lot that happens in that thing. He, he monologued for, I think 15 minutes. Oh my God. It, it like goes. Hamlet. It's <laughs> please. That should be a back of the box quote for that game. Just like Hamlet. I loved um, it. I thought it was great. Uh, uh, I can't, is this serious? Is this, I'm, I'm only being about, 60% ironic, I think. Okay, I can't, t- like, because there's definitely irony to this, but I, so I gave that game a really <laughs> high score because I loved it as a basketball game. And looking back, I should have, like, given it a lower score because that thing is <laughs> unique and goofy, and I was too forgiving on that. Do you have any games you look back on? You're like, I, maybe I was too harsh on this, or uh, vice versa. I have, I have one I think I was too forgiving on. Um, Civilization Beyond Earth, I think, was one that I, I think, ultimately, I kind of, like, I, what probably happened was I was probably really sucked into the, the just one more turn kind of thing a little bit on it. And probably like, I think probably came around and said like, look, you know, it, it plays the like civilization, you know, it just goes through that just one more turn. You'll be kind of compelled and didn't really get quite as critical as I probably should have been on it. But I, I, I might have given it like a seven out of 10 or something like that. I can't remember, but um, I to, more to the question. Like um, I, I think like, you were kind of saying about it before, like it's not necessarily a, like uh, an editor's problem uh, to worry about whether or not you're being too forgiving or too harsh. It's more, it, are you supporting your arguments, you know? And that's where that kind of gets, you know, will bear out is basically like, do, have you given the you know proper reasons for it? Cause I, I usually think like, like the tone review I think is more truthful to how you actually feel about it. So like if, if you seem kind of angry about a game and you're, and you're, you're, you're really not saying anything good about it, then like that's, you probably didn't really enjoy it. And so the matter is like, you know, do you really support that argument? Do you like, you know, go, why do these things that you're harping on, why do they matter? Why, you know, more than the other things that whatever the, the game does fine adequately or something like that. It's about, you know, pulling that out saying, why is this more important? Why is this less important? That kind of thing. Yeah, totally agree. Um, let's, let's do this email next because there's a lot of quick hits here that maybe we can, there's one at the top that seems like a longer conversation. This is from Steven Santana. Uh, let's start with this part of it. What's the difference between a 77 and a 78 score besides sites wanting useless numbers? Uh, that, that about answers the question. It's, I don't love hundred point scales exactly. Cause I like, what is the difference? Not that like, whatever, if you want to do that, you do that. I'm usually, I mean, we can get into the review score conversation slightly here. I, I'm usually good with like a five star kind of system. I think that's usually where I fall on that. Would you get rid of review scores entirely? Uh, No, I like them. Um, Not necessarily through any like inherent good thing that they do themselves, I guess. But I think what I've said is I think that review scores reveal the other problems that we have with game reviews, which is that like whenever, when a game comes out and everyone 
gives it a 10 out of 10, that shows you that we have a problem with <laughs> with how we review games because every single AAA game is, is 10 out of 10, 9 out of 10, whatever, every single time. And no one's willing to really wait outside of that with review scores, which, you know, tells you that no one really thinks differently about these games. Well, hold, let me, let me devil's advocate really quickly here because we've had a lot of recent like AAA games that were getting super high scores like Zelda God of War. There's a lot of games that have had that. And you see this response a lot and I kind of want to see how you answer it. When people... When Zelda gets a 96 on Metacritic and people a lot, a lot of times ask, like, you know, where is the review diversity? But you always see the comment of someone saying, what if the game is just really good and everyone who reviews it really enjoy it? Like, what if the game is just that good, that much of an actual quote unquote masterpiece that they just love the game? How do you respond to that? What we know is that throughout the, the, the many, many years of history going back of review scores that we have now, you know, a few decades going back, I think what we have, we've seen is that they think every game that has that sort of budget, that has that sort of momentum behind it is that good. You know, there's games don't come out and just like trip when they have that amount of money and that amount of focus testing and, and that mo- amount of research and, and, you know, dollars behind them. Um, you know, like the the worst that happens is maybe they come out and you know you get uh, you know the the occasions are so rare that I can name them off the top of my head. You get like a Destiny one that comes out and you know gets a few sixes and sevens out of tens. You know, like a few of them, but you know still like pretty good scores across the board. You know, and that's that's like a weird outlier, and that game did pretty well. You know, like um, it, it just doesn't really happen. Every single game that comes out that has the sort of momentum behind it, that has you know uh, publishers lined up behind it, and 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 knowing that they can forecast a certain amount of money and a certain amount of buy, you know, like for that quarter behind that game, there it always meets those expectations. It's it's a, it's a nine out of ten. It's a ten out of ten, and that just it just defies all logic. You know, um, I I think in many cases these games are really good, but what. What we need to do is we need to change the way that we think about games because right now we have a audience that is generally uncritical and that's fine and that's one thing. But we also have reviewers that are exactly the same as that audience uncritical. They're not asking anything of anybody. They're not trying to push the medium forward. They're not trying to tease out new ideas or challenge anybody or do anything that's interesting at all to me. They're just serving up the same comfort food over and over and over again. And they're not saying that, you know, this is fine. It's comfort food and it has its problems. Still enjoy it. Go ahead. This, you know, a a bad review doesn't keep you from enjoying a game. What they're saying is that's great. That's peak. That's the best that this, you know, this medium can do. And I I just don't think that that's, it's not critical. It's not uh, interesting. It's not artistic. And it's, you know, we can do better as, as critics. Do you think, not that people start at 10 and then dock things, like dock numbers off for certain aspects, but do you think it's fair to take a game again like Zelda and if, if you say like, well, this is not pushing certain aspects forward and I'm giving this game a six because of that. Basically, I'm I'm giving this game a six because this is not the thing that's, it's not trying to push harder. Like, is that, fair is such a weird word. It's just this entire thing, I totally get it. And I, I think we're on the same side of the fence with this with like, hey, not all AAA games should immediately just start at like good ones are nines, great ones are tens, mediocre ones are eights. That well, th- isn't this how is, it should be. This is why I say that critics need to start earlier in the process because if if we if we go from hey look this is what this game is trying to achieve, then okay so that's what's trying to do. So now I just have to evaluate whether or not it achieves that goal. You know th- these uh, tri- I, I say that. 
AAA games have a different design process than other games. Um, if you, you know, if someone is a one person developer and they're trying to, you know, make a really artistic indie game, um, the way that you'll do a lot of design, you know, um, is you introduce problems for yourself to solve. I want to try to do this. I want to try to do this. Then you try to find a creative solution to get around that problem. And then you end up with a result, not necessarily a result that you knew you were going to get at the start of it. And that is anathema to making money. Because you may end up with a result that it does not appeal to a broad audience. Yeah. So what a, what a AAA game tries to do is it tries to start with a con- the idea of this is a thing that will be able to be sold to a broad audience. Now, how do we arrive at that? And they'll make artistic decisions en route to that. And sometimes they can be really interesting. And sometimes at the end of it, even if the thing is a, a thing designed to be sold to a broad audience, it can be really interesting and artistic. That can happen. But the design process is... is a little bit backwards with this, where they're trying to reverse engineer a product that they know they can sell. Um, so, you know, like what that should not coincide to me with how we think of what is a good game. You know, I, I, the, the idea that uh, a thing will make people money and it will support people's careers and they'll be able to have, you know, you know, bring home food to the, you know, to the table, like, you know, by paying for, uh, uh, by producing AAA games that's a good thing for them. And obviously you want them to be able to do that, but for a critic, you can't think about that. That's not the thing that you should be uh, evaluating. I should not be going to see like, it will, they tried to make a game that would be able to be sold to a lot of people and they did that. They achieved it. Therefore it's a 10 out of 10. It's completely antithetical to the critical process. Yeah. This, this is weird that I'm going to somehow relate this to the UFC, but bear with me for a second. I feel like they're the fans of the UFC very much, Sometimes they applaud what they do because they're like CM Punk fight. We're like, well, I understand why they do that. So I'm okay with it because it makes them money. But from the fans perspective, you shouldn't care about that. Like, no, I just I'm in this to watch good MMA and I shouldn't be thinking like what makes the UFC the most money is good for me, too. And it makes sense. I think maybe there's a bit of a, a parallel between that and the way fans, quote unquote, look at games like, okay, this is this is okay because it is going to be sold to a wide audience and it works that way that's maybe not something well definitely not something that critics should be considering at all oh no and that's that's something i've specifically written about too um i uh jay caspian kang used to write for uh grantland a great writer and he he took a piece from a uh uh thing that someone had written i think it was in the new york times an opinion piece it was um i think like jonathan hale and it's about a concept called the veil of opulence and that's where you evaluate things not based on you know, what's good for you based on, you know, like, you know, what you think about it. you base uh, your opinions on it on what's good for other people. So you think like, what if that was me? What would I like? Uh, Hale wrote about it with politics where, you know, like trickle down economics and that kind of thing. And it's like, oh, well, look, like, why should these billionaires pay taxes, you know, more taxes because they earn that money. And so you're evaluating it as if you were them, the billionaire. I think it's my money, not based on like, well, I think I should be supported more that kind of thing. And it comes to back to sports, too, because people do this with sports where they say, like, you know, why should uh, James Dolan pay Jeremy Lin, you know, $20 million and uh, go over the luxury tax and have to pay more money? Jeremy Lin's not worth that much money. Yeah. It's not your money. <laughs> if you want to see Jeremy <laughs> Lin play, like, you should want them to pay for Jeremy Lin. You know, 
James Dolan is a billionaire, like he could afford him. Why are you worrying about the specifics of how, you know, whether he pays an extra million or not? It's not, you know, it doesn't matter to you. You should care about seeing Jeremy Lin play, the guy play. And people do this with video games too. And that, that was the thing that I wrote about on my blog is that people evaluate video games based on these kind of things that are not, you know, do I want to play the best game, the most interesting game? They evaluate based on things like, oh, did it make enough money? Uh, did it push play, you know, Sony ahead of Microsoft? That kind of thing. Like other people's concerns. They shouldn't be your concern as a person who's interested in you know, playing good games. Yeah, and I think with people who aren't critics and are just fans of things, in that case, I get it. Where you're like, I love this series. I... I'm okay if they do certain things that make them more money because I want to see it continue. And because the, you know, quote unquote gamer culture, people so closely associate their identity with games, they want financial success to happen. They want this industry to, you know, boom as much as possible. But again, when you're a critic, that can't be. Yeah. You can't can't have a moment where you're like, oh, I understand why there's microtransactions because games are expensive. It's like, okay, sure. And I, I understand the financial situation of that. But does it make the game better or worse? Like, are they hampering certain aspects of this? Are they changing the way that you progress in the game through microtransactions that is making the game worse? Like, okay, then that is a negative on that, even if you do understand inherently why they're doing that and how right now AAA game development is so insane in the budget that it sucks that a lot of people feel like they have to do that. But that should not be something that you're okay with just for that fact when you're actually critiquing something. Yeah, and I believe it's the critic's job to be a a, a counterbalancing force on a lot of these things because, you know... who else is going to ad- advocate for it? If, if the fans are so wrapped up in, in, you know, fandom is in some way sublimating, you know, uh, your, what you want into what some broader idea, you know, what, what's successful for it. So, you know, it's, it's the critic's job to be a counterbalancing force to that, to, to say no, you know, and, and hold the art, uh, you know, as, as the thing that has the primacy is the most important part. Did the battlefront two response and reviews, did that, encourage you in any way of this is a triple a game but okay of course it still didn't get like a whole bunch of fives and fours and reviews of that scale on metacritic but the pushback that you're talking about seemed the clearest on that game of like hey this is not okay even if we understand why you're doing this this is not okay was that encouraging for you at all as a critic of being like maybe people are putting that stuff aside and actually judging this game and what makes it better and what makes it worse i mean i'm not gonna say it was it was you know, bad to see. I mean, um, obviously, I, I think that we need so much more <laughs> like critical <laughs> pushback. Like, so, you know, like, uh, yes, it's a good thing. Um, I think there was also a lot of it. And the, here's the thing for me is that it doesn't represent any sort of divergence between um, what the most vocal fan base will say about a game and what the, you know, and the, what the critical community will say. They just happen to line up nicely there. And so you have a, they're all on the same page and the critic becomes a sort of consumer advocate kind of thing in that, in that regard. Um, that's fine. That's not necessarily bad, but it doesn't, didn't really represent anyone taking any sort of risks and, and calling out something that was really, you know, that they were going to get, pushback for they weren't being brave by saying that the yeah. yeah there were issues with that so you know it's it's nice it's fine it would also would have been better if people were more critical about the game too and not just that game but but all of the other AAA games where this sort of thing happens a couple other quick hits from steven this is a will will larger sites ever move away from launch day reviews and allow for more time and naturally uh 
and actually more quality critiques. Uh, no, <laughs> um, yeah. probably not because there are still people aggressively searching for reviews as soon as they're available. And just let's talk about business wise again, like we were just talking about uh, as a site. If you are just leaving that on the table, it's probably not a great business practice. There is like sometimes Kotaku will take time on that and really let the critic go longer and, and not post it immediately. And like Giant Bomb is not exactly a really big review site, but they're not really worried about embargoes. Um, I think there's, of course, a lot of room for, hey, let's have really smart feature writing after the game comes out that digs into certain aspects of it. Uh, I, I do think the nature of the beast right now is that when that embargo goes up, everyone's immediately searching for that. And if you miss that window business-wise, I don't think the people who you work for are going to be super happy. But could you ever see a day where maybe we're just like, don't worry about some publisher-mandated embargo. We're just going to, like GameSpot's just going to wait to release this review until it's done? Um, generally, no. Um, you know, it's, it's a, I think, a thing to me where... It, it, it has overlap with an, a, an impulse that I don't think is necessarily bad, which is that you want to be in there when the conversation is happening and you want to, you know, when the interest is there and that kind of thing. And like that, I don't think that's necessarily a bad motivation, you know, even before we get to the like, oh, this is when people are going to be clicking it. Oh, this is what's going to make more money kind of thing. I mean, you know, if something's, you know, circulating around and everyone's talking about it, you want to wait in there. And I think that's a fine natural impulse and not necessarily something we need to steer away from. Um there's also th- there's a, there's a you know small benefit for this too, which is that when you have an embargo date, then you know people aren't necessarily fighting to try to get the first thing out there and, and get the clicks on that. So you know you know that you're going to be coming out with at the same time as everybody else. So you, what you want to do then is write the most interesting, best review, and then distinguish yourself that way. So you know that can be a, a, a good thing to have, you know, like for those kind of things, especially. And the more important thing is that um, uh, publishers give you enough time with the game that you can yeah. formulate those and be a little bit more critical. If you get you know a couple days before, then you're screwed functionally. It's so great when you get a game super early. <laughs> like you can actually just take your time with it. I we have a question a little bit later. I, well, I might skip. I'm not sure about like what's the shortest window you've ever had to review something. I remember I had to review. I think it was NBA Live 16, one of the bad ones, which really could say about any NBA Live game, in like, I had to play it and then have the review done in five days. Um, mm. And it just wasn't enough time, but I had to do it. And I remember you know, I was, had a full-time job at that point and was just freelancing on the side. It was actually one of the last freelance reviews I ever did because it's just by the end of it, I'm like, that was awful. Like, that was not, that was not worth whatever I got from it. Uh, and it was just, I could not, sit on those thoughts long enough i had to just steamroll and i part of me feels bad because like I, I look i don't think nba live is a good game so in the end I, i'm fine with that review and that score but there's also part of me where it's like this is unfair to the person who made this that i have to just marathon it as much as possible and not really give anything time i'm just going to give my first impression because that's all i have here have, have you ever had something that was like five days i know you said most of the time you are sitting on these and thinking about them but what's the shortest slash worst experience you've had like that uh I don't know if I know one specifically, uh, but I think probably one of those cases where I was covering for another reviewer that fell out for some reason, I might have had a deadline come up that was like maybe uh, one week or something like that, and I probably just blew through it anyway. Like, I <laughs> turned in a lot of things past deadline. <laughs> you don't so, say. Well, the, the trick is you get them used to you blowing deadlines early, and then that way you can just do it from then on. 
I really want to get to this one because we're running a little bit short on time. This one's from John Bowen, who has two questions, but I'm going to read them both because I think they're related. Uh, How do you deal with the disconnect between the changes you want to see in games media versus what audiences reward in games media? And similarly, again, we can read an entire conversation. Uh, How do you address the success and sales of games like Far Cry 5 and Wildlands without uh, playing into the reactionary anti-game journal YouTuber hands? Uh, P.S. You're a good, reasonable dude. He's probably talking about you, not me. (laughs) I hope you keep doing the podcast generally. Um, No, that's you. That's you. Now it's me. That that first one is super interesting to me. How do you deal with the disconnect between the changes you want to see in games media versus what audiences actually reward? Because we talked earlier about YouTubers, enthusiastic YouTubers who are flown places or given something and, um, you know, talking about how everyone's wrong about the Fallout 4 reviews when at the very beginning of the video, it's like sponsored by Fallout 4. Um, And that's the kind of stuff that will get, you know, hundreds of thousands of views. And then some of the other sites that do do things and maybe the ways that we want to see it moving forward don't get that response and i mean how do you it's it's hard to deal with that because in a lot of cases you're just like i want the thing that i know in my brain is right and maybe how i really think games should be talked about to do well but that's very often not the case you're you're gonna get millions of views for a top 10 best boob physics in all video game history and that's gonna get a whole bunch of views and you're like man that sucks, but like that's that's also life. I mean, look at our current president. I don't agree with that, but a lot of people seem to think that was a good idea. So like, there's a lot of this stuff that's kind of hard to deal with and hard to grapple with in your brain. Yeah, I I, I think the way that I try to think of it is that like we're playing different games, basically. You know, it's it's apples and oranges and that kind of thing. Because I mean, not that I can't speak to you know you know the more popular stuff that's out there too. I I, I do often and I'll get angry about it you know very frequently. Um, but like I, I remember I used to have um, I had I was I think criticizing um, Total Biscuit one time, and uh, I had a lot of his fans in my mentions saying like you know uh, look at how many followers you have, look at how many followers he has <laughs> that kind of thing. <laughs> uh, you know like and uh, the. Like you're not in the mind state where you think of like this. We are in comparable markets. We're doing the same kind of thing. Obviously, we're we're doing different stuff, and you know there's there's inter- interlapping you know between the two of them, and and on some cases, well, you know, I'll speak to the same sort of stuff that a YouTuber is speaking to too, and then we'll have a debate and we'll we'll argue about it. But uh, that even at in my in my wildest dreams, you know, the, the thing that I do has a very small audience. You know, yeah. uh, and it, if you don't have that constantly in mind, then you're, you're going to set yourself up for a lot of anguish the whole time. Um, you know, so like the stuff, the stuff that they do uh, that makes them very popular uh, is not the stuff that I do that makes me popular for the 200 people that care about it. You know, so I try to do what I do well for my audience they do what they do well for their audience, and then we, you know, butt heads in between about the stuff whenever our worlds kind of collide. But yeah, and I don't want to be unfair to every single YouTuber. Like even people who do do top ten lists, there's a totally a, a purpose for that, and it, I I will watch those every once in a while. And I don't think you're wrong if you're suddenly like I don't know. I just like watching top 10 lists on YouTube. It's more of the when major YouTubers become extensions of publisher PR. That's what I'm like. I think that's a bad practice. Like, I think that is not really helping anyone. And to take that person's opinion 
as you know, gospel, but not really copping to the fact of like, hey, I feel like they're just being super effusive with praise for very specific reasons. And to get angry at people who challenge that, that's when I'm like, man, that's a bummer. But Yeah, and as a person who's interested in the scene, I'm, I'm interested in, in what goes on with YouTube. I'm interested in what makes it popular, not necessarily to emulate, but just to, add, to see where video games are going, you know, um, because the, obviously there's a, a huge interest and popularity there and that, that changes the direction of the field in many ways. Um, and, you know, like I, I make it my business to comment on it too. Like, you know, if, I, if we have this recent rash of YouTubers that can't help but say racial epithets, you know, in, in front of their audience and, you know, the, the critic and, and uh, the cultural critic in me, the person who's interested in writing features and thinking about the stuff critically says, well, maybe there's a reason for that. Maybe it's not a bug. You know, maybe it's a feature of it. Yeah. And why is that? And then I, I want to speak to it as well. So, you know, I don't necessarily, you know, if, if a YouTuber has an opinion about a video game that I don't necessarily de- disagree, you know, uh, agree with. I'm probably not going to go out, <laughs> and, yeah. and, you know, argue with the video games, you know, you know, critically with him. But if there's something else that's unique to YouTube and unique to games criticism or unique to just video games in general that YouTube can speak to, then maybe I'm, I'm interested in that. I want to pay attention to it, too. It's really easy to not be racist if you're not racist. That's what I would think with all these different things that people have been saying lately. And again, this is another tangent. Like, it, please stop. That's my please stop moment of this year. Please stop saying that. Like just and also when you apologize, don't say I'm sorry that you were offended. It's not a really good apology. Just be like, I'm sorry you felt this way, even though I didn't mean it and move on with life. It's really easy to not be racist and it's really easy to apologize correctly. I don't think it's necessarily easy to not be racist because I think and this is an issue with those guys just to go on this tangent really quick. But like, you know, even when they're issuing their apologies that, you know, the next day they come out with an apology and I'm always like, it's. You're, you don't you don't even know what you did wrong yet, you know. Yes. Like because if if you say uh, a racial epithet, it, it's not like oh I just pop that out in the spur of the moment. That's the thing that you had in your vocabulary, you know. Mm-hmm. And you, it's going to take some time to go back there and figure out why that came out, and you know, bring it back more broadly to just uh, to streaming and that kind of thing in general. You know, I think we should be asking ourselves like you know what's popular, what sort of behaviors you know are popular, like what kind of what does this bring out for people? For YouTubers, it's got to be really tough because so if you if you make a mistake like like this, then you got to still be right back out there. You can't take a day off because every single minute that you're not in front of the you know camera like streaming a game is is money lost. So the impulse is going to be to go right back out there, go right to the environment where you started doing this in the first place. You know that may be a bad scene for you, but you have to go back out there to make money. And the people that are you know supporting you are going to be telling you you didn't do anything wrong because they just want to watch you do that thing again. So it's got to be pretty tough. Yeah, and I you are right in terms of if you are saying something like that, that is something that's in your vocabulary. Like I understand there's this weird culture of like how, what's the worst and most shocking thing I can say, but no matter what, if that's something that is yelled when you die in a game, that means you were saying that in your private life. I'm just putting that out there. Uh, this one is from Christian. I think, I think it's Nesson. Um, Hey, Josiah and Nick, uh, don't, 
<clears throat> Don't you think review scores matter more now than they ever did? With the boom in streaming and Let's Plays before it, it seems like the vast majority of gamers flock to gameplay streams and videos to get a good sense of the quality of a game and how it plays. But none of those things really give you a comprehensive sense of the game's quality. Now, one reviewer's score might not mean much in a vacuum, but when aggregated on a site like Metacritic alongside dozens of other scores for the same game, it indirectly evens out the inherent biases of each reviewer. Uh, sure, you might go to an IGN if you're interested in what Dan Stapleton thinks of X or listen to a Giant Bomb podcast, hear what Jeff Gershman thinks of it. But both of these takes are obviously extremely biased because of their own preferences. Uh, I think this is where Metacritic comes in. Even if you have a few outliers who downright hated a game, you can be pretty sure that if a game is an 80 or above on Metacritic, the quality of the game is sound and it's very likely worth your money if you enjoy the genre. Sorry, almost done. I really think review scores matter more than written and video reviews these days. I am simply not going to watch or read a review for a game I had zero interest in. But if there's a game that scores highly across multiple sites and channels, I'm probably going to take a look at it. And by taking a look, I mean watching a stream or a giant bomb quick look. Uh, sorry for the long question, but you know how hard it is not to ramble on about stuff like this. Um, so, I mean, a lot of this is when we talk about when you see an 80 or above on Metacritic, you know the quality of the game has to be inherently sound. I guess that maybe that we we talked earlier about maybe we're not talking about games right, and maybe there is a, a AAA threshold that, you know, a, a, a unsuccessful in a lot of ways AAA game still gets an 8, so I'm not entirely sure I fully agree with that. I've definitely had moments where... Um, I will not not really heard of a game suddenly see a really high Metacritic for something and then be interested in it. Like that still works on me. Numbers still work on me. I'm a simple man. <laughs> Every once in a while, it's like if this game that happened with Dead Cells where I saw like Polygon, other people gave it like a nine. So I was like, I don't know nothing about this game. Suddenly, I'm into it. Um, and I do think there's still, you know, people talking about do we really need reviews? That happens a lot because it's like, well, there's there's full gameplay out there that you can kind of make your own opinion, but. He's absolutely right in terms of those are not comprehensive of the entire quality of the game. If you have a let's play from like a, a quick look that's like 40 minutes and someone talks about the entire game since they played all of it. I mean, at that point, it's essentially just a longer freeform video review. But I mean, there's still absolutely in my mind a need for a more comprehensive review because I think that does go farther than just show certain aspects of a game on a, a YouTube video with let's play or a Twitch stream. Yeah, I would I would caution the uh, uh, the the writer here because um, sort of some of the stuff that I was kind of talking about before. Um, I, there's a lot of assumptions that we bring to the table with these kind of games. Uh, I think there's a lot of issues with the the pool of people that are doing video game criticism right now, um, and so I, I would caution uh, to be hesitant about like putting too much on the fact that there's a consensus that is, you know, we arrive at when we have something like Metacritic. Um, you know, the, what Metacritic does that I think is, is dangerous um, is it gives you the impression that if you take a bunch of things that are subjective data points and you combine them all together that, and give it a, you know, a, a, comp a number, then what you have arrived at is something objective. You know, uh, it's yeah. a really popular online fallacy for some reason. You take a bunch of stuff that's subjective, you put it all together, run it through a little, you know, algorithm, give it a little uh, fancy thing at the end that says like, oh, it's this exactly, and you think that that's an objective data point, and it's not. It's just you take a bunch of su subjective things, you end up with a subjective output that just, you know, is an amalgamation of them all. Um, you know, 
one, that's a factor of, you know, Metacritic's obscure algorithm that they do with the stuff, which is introducing subjectivity to it, of course. Uh, the other is the fact that, you know, the, the, the initial data set that we have of review scores for a game is a, even all combined, that's very subjective and it's very subject to, um, a bunch of different factors, like who plays these games, who gets those positions at sites to review them, and how differently are they, are they all thinking about this stuff? Um, you know, and if that ends up kind of wiping away outlier voices and kind of just, they get swept up, you know, if someone gives a game a 2 out of 10 and everyone else gives it a 10 out of 10, that gets, you know, kind of wiped out in the average, you know, that's doing them a little bit of a disservice. And if we're thinking about the end result there instead of all of the individual ideas that are being talked about a game, then we're not really thinking critically about them. Um, and, you know, I, like, look, I... Sometimes I just like games that a lot of people like too. And sometimes I know what I like and I want to have that comfort food game and, and play it. And, you know, like seeing a whole bunch of 10 out of 10s or something like that for it will maybe feel, make me feel a little bit better about it. But um, on some level, what I'm doing there is tricking myself and I'm kind of suppressing my more, you know, critical faculties. And I don't think that's necessarily a a good impulse, you know, like it's fine every now and again, but, um, I don't want to, you have to be careful about investing too much in it, you know? Yeah. <laughs> Super random. You know, the number of people who have come to me or like complained to me on Twitter saying like, Oh man, Metacritic never knows what they're talking about. They only give these certain games, certain scores. They just have no idea that it's an aggregate site. Like there's, there's so <laughs> many people who I've met in my life who are just like, they think Metacritic is like, is a reviewer, yeah. is a reviewer and everyone takes it seriously because it's the biggest reviewer not knowing like, these are all the scores combined. I've had like dozens of people come up to me and talk about that like well it's that's not. you know i mean that's the brilliance of it and this kind of, it's a little bit startup culture in that kind of way where its business is in consuming everything else really and making yeah. everything part of it it's you know like a facebook sort of does the same thing where they make everyone else's business their business and then because then you're the central hub for it then you become conflated with what all the rest of the stuff is you know so it's it's very difficult um and, you know, for me, like I always would say that, you know, when I write reviews, I don't want my reviews showing up on Metacritic, you know, because what they're doing is they're taking something that I have specifically constructed to be in a specific context and they're taking it and they're completely recontextualizing it. They're putting alongside all these other things that I don't necessarily want it to be compared to one to one, you know, my reviews compared to someone else's. And then they're giving them all a number, even if there isn't necessarily a number with it. They're folding them all together. They're saying they're all alike. And then they're outputting a single thing to summarize all of them. That's, you know, that's bad for a reviewer. You don't want to see that. You know, you want people reading your specific words and thinking about them. Yeah. And some of those quotes are interesting that they pull i have a lot of times where i'm like that is not the quote i would use for this game that i reviewed yeah, uh, yeah. this we're running just about out of time uh let's do this last one this is from red again thanks everyone for the questions i, I couldn't get to all of them and some of them were repeats but uh this one is from the real scarzella who now wins the best name of all of these that i've read so far uh this one is i vaguely remember hearing someone on waypoint talk about how they used to review movies and that process has ruined them and they can't turn off that critical part of their brain when they watch movies now do you have the same problem with games um not anymore i used to when i was very fresh off of it and it's not just the critical part that i was having trouble turning off it was just the pace i was playing games at where i was always you you were not trying to mainline it but you know you have to get it done a certain time because i was one of the people who 
I was reviewing games that were almost always on a deadline. So I had that part of my brain that was really difficult to turn off. And now that I'm separated from it enough, I don't really think about it too much. Of course, like, you know, you think about whether or not you like a game or not, or what aspect is good and what as, but I don't sit there and think, how would I write about this? That's not entirely gone, but it's, I actually not more think about it. If I'm going to talk on a podcast, how am I going to relay it that way? So it's still slightly there. Um, but it's not not all the way. I feel like it's going to change again when I become a developer because now I'm going to be asking questions of like, why did they do this? Or how and, did they do this? Or maybe now that I know. Yeah. 100%. <laughs> yeah. um, and like that's going to happen. I talked to John Vignocchi recently and he says he does that all the time when he's playing games of why did they do this? Or how could they have done this better? Or just you know being impressed in that way. And Mike Laidlaw has talked about that too a lot on his streams. So it's probably going to flip for me. But I think because I have the distance from it, I don't think about that as much. Like, I don't think that I, I have two different means of, like, ways of thinking, like, you know, critical way of thinking, and then, you know, just when I'm playing games on my own way of thinking. But, um, you know, because even, even before I started writing about games, I, I think I still tried to kind of think about them critically, it's where my interest was, really. Um, but I, when I'm playing games on my own, I don't necessarily have that same compulsion to take the things that I think about them and then construct an argument around them. Um, so, you know, maybe in some ways that makes me think about games a little bit differently, just because I think sometimes when you, you know, put pen to paper and you're trying to write your way through an argument, sometimes you get to the end of it and realize like, oh no, I actually feel this way about it. Like now that I see it all on tech, you know, in paper, now that I've thought my way all the way through it, then you maybe arrive at a different position, but, um, not necessarily out of like a difference of an approach. Like it's just about following things through all the way to the end. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, last question is my question for you, Nick. Where can people find you on Twitter? What are you and what are you working on right now that you could talk about? Like, are you still freelancing actively? Are you still running reviews? Um, I don't know if I would ever say that I'm freelancing actively. <laughs> I'm kind of like a I'm like a passive freelancer. Like, kind of like just eventually, like thing words build up to the point where I just end up like you know like some threshold is surpassed and I like you know level up and throw an article out. Um, uh, I'm always working on stuff. Uh, you'll probably see me more at uh, Waypoint. Um, like to always freelance for those guys, and they, bless their hearts, have not thrown me out the door yet. <laughs> not um, so that's probably where you'll probably catch my byline uh, in the immediate future. Uh, on Twitter, uh, at Nick Capizzoli. Uh, last name is C-A-P-O-Z-Z-O-L-I. I know it's a mess, but that's where I am most of the time. The first time we talked, I was like trying to find every pronunciation for your name ever. I was like, I want to make sure I nail this when I first say it out loud. And I think I did. That's just one thing I take pride in the podcast, not the quality or the guests or anything like that. It's really last name pronunciation. Like the yeah. amount of time I put into that to make sure I don't fuck that up. It's really the majority of my prep. No, you nailed it. Uh, 10 out of 10. <laughs> That's yeah, that's the only real the only true 10 out of 10 is my triple A pronunciation of names. Uh, Nick, thanks so much for doing this again. It's been a while. I'm glad we can, you know, mostly agree on this. Not really any crazy arguments. Um, we did get again. Thanks to everyone who had submitted all of these questions. These are really they were really thought provoking. They're really interesting. And oh, yeah. uh, again, I'm happy people didn't hold back in a lot of ways. It was it was fun to do this. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm happy I can send you off, you know, on your uh <laughs> Journey the to the dark time. side. Yeah. The last time we're ever going to actually talk. Next podcast, I'll just be like, I don't know. I think all AAA games should get an 11 out of 10. What do you think about that, Nick? That's going to be the entire podcast. <laughs> um, I hope not. I'm going to be fine. I'm going to still have the same mindset. I've reviewed games for too long. Um, so, so thanks, everyone, for listening. And hopefully tune back in for the next episode of the 1099.